So let's notice the command that God gave us regarding the Feast of Trumpets. I'd be remiss if we do not turn to, Le- to Leviticus 23. In Leviticus 23, verse 1, says, And the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, The feast of the Eternal, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feast. So these days again belong to God. They are his feast. And he gives us and grants us the understanding and the privilege of sharing these days with him. In verse 4, again, it says, These are the feast of the eternal, holy convocations, commanded assemblies, sacred assemblies, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. And, of course, this particular day is proclaimed over in verse verses 23 and 24. It says, Then the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. And so God here tells us that on tied to the calendar he revealed to Israel and has been kept very carefully down through the ages by, by the Jews, that we are to celebrate a holy day on the first month of the, of the first day of the seventh month of the sacred calendar. So God tells us to be here. Now in this verse, verse 24, God does not provide any explanation of consequence here. It just says it's a memorial of blowing of trumpets and it is a commanded assembly. So he doesn't give us too much explanation about the purpose or meaning of this day. So we have to look elsewhere in Scripture to determine its relevance to our lives and uh, its meaning, the meaning of this vital step in God's overall purpose for mankind. In ancient Israel, God uh, had them make special trumpets that were blown on several occasions. And we uh, just referred to it in Numbers chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. We are given there an account of the making of these these two trumpets. They're made of silver, and they were made to serve special purposes. All of them were important. And just going through the list, they were made one to, when they were blown, there was to be the time for the general assembly of, of the congregation of Israel to come together, and they would blow both trumpets on that occasion. And on the occasion where there was to be an assembly or gathering of the leadership, of the, of the tribes that only one trumpet was blown, but also they would blow the trumpets when it was time for Israel to start traveling. They'd be camped somewhere for a period of time and then it was time to start moving. The trumpets would be blown and based how they were blown and when they were blown, it was also a signal for how they were to uh, line up and, and, and begin traveling in, in what order. It also, they were to be blown at the beginning of each month. And the other two occasions that are of real note, they were to be blown at the appointed feast. So they were blown during the, the holy days, during the festivals. And the other, the last one, the number, the sixth reason was for a signal for war. A time was a, uh, a warning to be prepared. There was danger. And so all of them were important, especially for ancient Israel. But for uh, the signal of war would be a special meaning to us because of what we will discuss during the sermon. 
And, of course, if they, it, uh, they were in ancient Israel to remind people of the feast days. Now, we have calendars, and we can easily count these, uh, count the days and the number of the days or the months and know when the feasts are to be held. Essentially, the full understanding of the Feast of Trumpets was not provided uh, until the uh, completion of the New Testament. That was done uh, by the Apostle John. And prior to that, in writings by Paul, we are given some indication of some of the meaning and, and, uh, of what this day represents. Let's notice a couple of them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we will, of course, refer to this later in this, the sermon as well, but just to understand the particular time that's, that's affected here by the trumpets, that Paul is used to reveal something that uh, was a uh, prophecy at the time, because the full understanding, again, was not given until John wrote uh, the uh, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the last book of the Bible. But here in verse 52, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Of course, if it's the last trumpet, that certainly indicates there were other trumpets, at least one more. But uh, as we know, there are several. It says, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So it talks about one of the events that's going to happen is going to be the resurrection, and it will happen at the last trumpet when it's blown. So we're given there an understanding that clearly it's, that is referring to the end of the age when Jesus Christ would return. And then also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, it says, For the eternal, or for the Lord himself, will descend from heaven with a shout. So it will be when Jesus Christ returns with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. The last trump, the last trumpet being blown. And at that point, the dead in Christ will rise first. It will be a privilege granted to them because they died in the faith, and they are saints that have died down through time, and God is going to see to it they are given eternal life first. So with this background that we understand that the meaning of trumpets, what this day pictures, obviously is, uh, deals a great amount with uh, the end of the age, then we can go forward with this background and rehearse the meaning and the key events associated with the Feast of Trumpets. Now, at the beginning of this, I'll refer to you, uh, refer to you, uh, to uh, one of our booklets, Armageddon and Beyond, written by Mr. Richard Ames. And uh, on pages 26 and 27, he writes and uh, gives us some information that helps frame what we will be going through in the sermon. And it, and I say it's frame, gives it the frame. He, he has a subheading here on page 26, a framework for prophecy. Mr. Ames writes, or wrote, we need to understand the time sequence leading up to Jesus Christ's second coming. There are three major prophetic milestones leading up to his return. The Great Tribulation is one. Another one, the heavenly signs. And thirdly, the day of the Lord. These three events, he writes, 
cover a period of about three and a half years, and there are more than 30 prophecies in your Bible referring to the day of the Lord. Then a little lower on the page, he writes, In addition to these milestones, the book of Revelation reveals four ongoing events that continue for that period of three and a half years. So he says the first event is that Jerusalem is trampled by the Gentiles for 42 months in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. The second event is the two witnesses prophesying for 1260 days in Revelation 11, verse 3. The third event is the church's time in the wilderness, which the Bible describes as a time and times and half a time, which is biblical language for three and a half years. And that's given in Revelation 12, verses 13 through 17. The woman described here in Revelation 12 is symbolic of the church. And then the fourth event is the beast continuing for 42 months in his final revival, noted in Revelation 13, verses 1 through 5. He writes also, The great tribulation lasts for about two and a half years. Next, the heavenly signs shock people all over the world. The heavenly signs introduce the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is the prophetic time period of one year leading up to Christ's return. So if it's one year, then you have three and a half years. That means this, this great tribulation period is about two and a half years, as he noted. So it's in the book of Revelation that we find the detail of the meaning of the Feast of Trumpets at the end of the age. So let's turn there, and we'll begin in Revelation chapter 4. And as we go through this, uh, through the sermon, uh, we're going to be summarizing portions of it because it, a lot of the details are given and not necessary to read every verse and it would take more time than we have to do so. But in Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, After these things I looked, and this is referring to John, and behold, a door, op- a door standing open in heaven, and the first Voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. So John's being uh, told to come up, and as we see in verse 2, it's it's in a vision, and he is going to be given a prophecy about things are going to happen at some point in the future. Verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit. I mean, he was in a vision. And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So he sees the throne in heaven. And in, in uh, verse 5, it says, And from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So anyway, John is in a, uh, he's in a, in a vision, and he's before the throne of God. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. So I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the seal and on the back sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And this is the proper uh, verse five that uh, I was, should have turned to. Verse five, it says, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah 
The root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. points out here that this is a reference made to Jesus Christ. He's qualified to loosen the seven seals necessary to open this particular scroll. In which well, we're, these, this scroll is going to reveal the key prophetic events and details just prior to Jesus Christ's return. So let's note then also that part of what is about to be revealed is in fact the result of Satan's wrath. For a moment, let's turn over to Revelation 12. Revelation 12, verse 9. And this particular chapter is one of the inset chapters between the discussion of the woes. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast with him. Then in verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. And so at the end of the age, it's clear to Satan, as much as he may know it right now, it will be even more obvious to him that he has a short time in order to do whatever damage he wants to try to do against God's plan and God's purpose. So he comes down in great wrath. And so what we find then, and let's go back to chapter 6 of the book of Revelation. And here we find the opening of the seals of the scroll that Jesus Christ is using to reveal what is going to happen. Revelation chapter 6 talks about the seals. And I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'll just make references to the verses and point out the seals. In verses 1 and 2... We find the first seal being opened, and it's referring to a white horse. And then it is a a prophecy, a symbol of widespread and great deception about Christ, centered on Christ, and also the false gospel about Christ. This is noted in Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 and 5. Then in verses 3 and 4 of Revelation 6, the second seal is opened. And there is revealed a red horse that is symbolic of war. And words are taking peace from the earth. So there's going to be widespread war in Matthew 24. It's talked about wars and rumors of wars. In Matthew 24, verses 6 and 7. Then in Revelation 6, verses 5 and 6, the third seal is opened. And there is revealed a black horse, which is symbolic of famine. And that is also noted in, in Matthew 24, also part of part of verse 7, and make reference to this. In Revelation 6, verses 7 and 8, you have the fourth seal being opened, and there is a, a pale horse that is symbolic of pestilence and violence, and it says even wild beast. So a lot of death being brought on by those those items, and also mentioned in Matthew chapter 24, verse 7. In Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11, the fifth seal is open, 
And that seal is symbolic of persecution and martyrdom of the saints. Uh, not only, especially at that time. In time, it may be symbolic to a degree of what's been going on for 2,000 years, but especially so at the end time. And yet it's referred to in Matthew 24, verse 9. But also it's noted in uh, Revelation chapter 12. Uh, we didn't read all of it at that section, but in uh, Revelation 12, verses 13 through 17, we see there the attack of Satan against the church and the, the uh, martyrdom of some of God's people. Then in Revelation 6, verses 12 through 16, you have the sixth seal being opened. And when that is opened, there's a great earthquake and there are heavenly signs occur. So these things, it's a, it's a uh, terrific occurrence on the earth. It's great earthquake. talks all kinds of and things are happening to the sun and the moon. And, of course, that's discussed in Matthew 24, verse 29. So we go through these six seals being opened. And if we read the account and what they mean, that you have a terrible time of death, destruction, wars, famine, pestilence, the like of which up to that point was unparalleled. Nothing in the history of mankind will compare to what those two and a half years will be like. The Bible talks about a great tribulation, and it's going to be a very difficult time for the world at hand. We can think about the the kinds of things that we've been, been through, even for the last 10, 12, 14 months, the kind of havoc it wreaked, has wreaked upon the earth and is still going on, the kinds of difficulties that civilization are, uh, has had. So the, what we'll see here was great destruction, worldwide death, all resulting from Satan's wrath because he hates mankind. He doesn't just hate God's people, maybe a special uh, vengeance against us, but he is against all of mankind because all of mankind eventually has a chance to be a part of God's family. And he would do everything he could to destroy that that opportunity for any one of us to be a part of God's family. And he's angry because he knows his time is short. So he wreaks great tribulation upon mankind for two and a half years. Then at the end of chapter 6, verse 17 we here have what is a segue, because we know that, as was I mentioned a moment ago, that with the heavenly signs, that is basically an introduction then to the day of the Lord. So Revelation 6, verse 17, says, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So we're transitioning after the heavenly signs. We're transitioning from the wrath of Satan to the wrath of God, to what the Bible calls the day of of the Lord, and even as I read in the uh, verbiage from Mr. Ames' booklet, that the day of the Lord is one year. So I want to look at a couple of scriptures to reference that. Back in Isaiah chapter thirteen, Isaiah thirteen, and I'll reference verses six through 13, but I'll only read three of them. Verse 9 refers to, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, 
So, again, whatever anger, wrath Satan had in mind, God also is going to bring a fierce anger and wrath upon mankind. Verse 11, he says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. So he's going to hold the whole world accountable for transgressing his, transgressing his law. Then he mentions in verse 12, I will make a mortal, mortal, a human being, more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. So he points out there's going to be a lot of death that we see what we go through here. There'll be billions of people who will die. And he says there's going to be that the number of people left are going to be few in number. In Isaiah chapter 34, a clear reference to this being this day of the Lord, being a year in time, Isaiah 34, verse 8, For it's the day of the Lord's, or the Eternal's, vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. So a day for a year, being used there in prophecy. Then in chapter 63, the parallel account, Isaiah 63, verse 4, just for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Clearly pointing out this is about God and his day of vengeance, and that it's a time when his his servants, those that have been called and those that are, have been obedient, are redeemed from the earth. We find also then in Jeremiah 25, just a reference to this time, Jeremiah 25, verse 33. And to that day, the slain of the eternal shall be from one end of the earth, even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried, and they shall become refuse on the ground, that the dead will be so uh, widespread that they'll be unable to bury all of them. In verse 29, the latter part of the verse, he says, I will call for a sword on all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord of hosts. So God says that his wrath is going to be also a tremendous time of suffering and punishment for, for the world. So let's go back then to Revelation We'll begin reading here in chapter 8. We've gone through the first six seals. We come into Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. It says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So the seventh seal consists of seven trumpets. And we, as we go through chapter 8 and chapter 9, these trumpets are broken down for us to understand what is taking place. Again, we've gone through the seal, the seventh seal, and now we're going to go through seven trumpets and what they mean. In verse 6, so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared them to sound. Time to blow. Verse 7, the first angel sounded. 
and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. So this is a, a time without parallel. It says here that we'll have one-third of all the trees and all the green grass burned up. And one can only imagine the heat, the smoke that will be forthcoming from all parts of the world. We can see the roar of the flames and what we watch on TV seemingly every year on our west coast of the wildfires, the fires that go through Washington and Oregon, uh, even in Colorado and Wyoming and California especially, that the uh, the havoc they wreak on on mankind on on the sites the, the cities and the living areas of people and the great damage so in the 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 fumes the smoke that the smoke carries out to, through through other areas and when if we think about a third of the trees and all the green grass being burned up we're, we're talking about a very very dangerous time and in verses 8 and 9 we have the Second trump being sounded, the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So something like a mountain or a huge mass of fire is thrown into the sea. The sea becomes one, becomes one third of it becomes blood, and a third of all the living creatures in the oceans die. So again, we have uh, incredible stench and pollution of the oceans. A third of the ships are destroyed. And you think, well, a third of them, a lot of those are ongoing through the oceans. A lot of them are docked at harbors. So harbors are blocked, uh, unusable. And you have this massive uh, loss of ability to ship goods from one place to another and creates a a huge lack of foods, things like that, to the for the people. So major, major problem, obviously, for the conduct of society as we know it. Then in verse 10, third angel sounds, and we have there a third of the fresh water is befouled and poisoned, and people die from that. There's widespread death, and there's a sense of great desperation. Even as we went through the the advent of the uh, pandemic and the the huge rush on supplies, on water, on other items because of the sense of desperation that people had. So with no fresh water, which was one of the items that people wanted uh, so they wouldn't have to go out and buy it, or, and maybe the water being uh, a problem as well. So there's a huge problem when there's no fresh water. In verses, uh, verse 12, we have the fourth trumpet is sounded, and the sun and the moon and the stars are affected, and a third of them either don't shine or there's darkness for a third of the time. And darkness is uncomfortable for people. And extended periods of darkness can be very terrifying. So God is cursing the earth and punishing the earth in that manner. And in verse 13 of chapter 8, he says, I looked and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about 
to sound. So the next three soundings of the trumpet are harbingers of even greater destruction, greater punishment, greater death, very much, that much more difficult than anything they had seen before. So we in chapter nine, verses, uh, we have the fifth trumpet being sounded. This is discussed in, in verses one through eleven. And this is the first woe. And we've, in, in the account, we're given the fact that there is a great demonic influence about what happens at that particular time. And there is a great amount, a large amount of military action. It tells us there that there are going to be five months in which men or human beings are afflicted. Very, very deadly time. And the military actions that are taking place. And this is because this, the demonic action and influence on societies and the nations at large, and especially in the, the beast power and those that are resisting the beast power. So it goes on for at least five months. Then in verse 13 through 18 of chapter 9, we have the sounding of the sixth trumpet. And in that particular case, four, four demons, he says angels, are released from the great river Euphrates. Again, there's great demonic influence taking place. And here we find that there are a lot of death being prophesied. And he says this huge army of 200 million men will be forthcoming and crossing the Euphrates area. And that they're going to kill, it says, it points out, one-third of mankind is going to be killed. And if we have in the neighborhood of seven and a half billion today, if we have many or more billion might be added before that time, one would suspect not that much more time. But if you one-third of them, if that's what's left, because there have been a lot of death already. But again, we're talking about perhaps billions of people coming from this particular military onslaught that uh, can we picture nuclear holocaust uh, certainly seems possible if not likely because of this trumpet being blown then in chapter 11 we finish chapter 9 and uh, we've turned to chapter 11 to understand the prophecy about the seventh trumpet chapter 11 verses 14 through 19, the seventh trumpet sounds, and that is the third woe. And here we find what appears to be, especially in verses 17 through 19, what appears to be a summary of what is going to happen over the next few days. Because this is when Christ comes back. It's when he first appears. Verse 15, it says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So Jesus Christ appears, and there's great devastation to be wrought on this particular time. Then we, if we move over to chapter 15, chapter 15, to discuss this seventh trumpet when it's blown, what it means, and how much 
destruction, devastation it will bring. He says, Then I saw another sign in verse 1 of chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. So seven seals. The seventh seal had seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet is comprised of seven last plagues. And then the words. These are rather foreboding words. It's written here. For in them the wrath of God is complete. Not only it's about to be finished, but it is going to represent the wrath of God in the next few days, a great devastation and the wrath of God is complete. Verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, And out of the temple came the seven angels. Then in verse 7, Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever. Then we have in chapter 16 the details of the last these seven plagues, seven last plagues which comprise the seventh trumpet. I'm not going to read those verses, but just go through the list of items that are, that are, that are mentioned, these seven last plagues, and we have to somewhat imagine, because this is something you and I have never seen on this scale, the magnitude that's described here, but there are grievous sores. So there's great pestilence and disease that happens, as well as just physically being afflicted. The sea is turned to blood. And all the remaining creatures in the sea died. Or they do die. The fresh water is turned to blood. Fourth item is the extreme heat from the sun, which afflicts people. Just, the, the heat is, is, uh, is deadly. And even with all of these things happening, we find there in, in the, uh, the, the account about the, the, the heat from the sun that men, or all mankind, there is no repentance. There is no internal or self-examination to say there's got to be a reason why these things are happening. That we need to tell God we're sorry for our ways of doing things, our ways of life. But no repentance. Then the, the fifth plague, it says, darkness falls on the seat of the beast. And this is the, the power and in, in the European power. Darkness falls on them. He talks about there's great blasphemy, there's great suffering. And in spite of that, again, there is no repentance. And then the sixth plague that's poured out, the river Euphrates dries up. And we find here there's an account where this is a massive eastern army again moving westward toward Israel. And we find here in, in, the, in Revelation uh, 16, Let's turn to verse 13. Again, this demonic influence. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And they are spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Verse 16, and they gathered them together to the place called, in Hebrew, Armageddon. So this is looking forth to then to the time when this army will actually gather to fight, as we know, Jesus Christ. And that's 
That's all part of the, the sixth plague being poured out. So we have then in verse 17, this seventh plague being poured out, out of the bowl, the golden bowl. Verse 17, And the seventh angel sounded, or poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It's done. This whole process of the wrath of God is now being completed. These are the final events of what God is doing to punish mankind. And here is a massive earthquake. talks about such a massive earthquake that the islands are moved, the mountains are moved. Again, we... some of us have been through earthquakes of some uh, some magnitude, certainly enough to frighten us and to destroy property uh, and to cause death. But the, this kind of earthquake has never been experienced by mankind, and even a great hailstorm also inflicting death on mankind. So this this seventh plague is a tremendous matter. In chapter nineteen. Verse 1, John writes, And after these things I heard a loud voice of great, of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Verse 5, And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as a sound of many waters and as a sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. So Jesus Christ is returning, setting up his kingdom, and he is going to reign, going to be in charge. And when he comes back, as we know, there's been this massive army moving toward Israel to do some sort of warfare with the military powers in that area at that time, and they're going to do battle. With Jesus Christ returning, rather than do battle with one another, they decide it's better to, and wiser on their part, to fight the returning Jesus Christ, the returning Creator, and the returning King of Kings. Make that, that mistake. It says here in verse 11, And now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war clearly referring to Jesus Christ, that he is the one who is faithful and true, and he comes to judge and also to make war, the final battle, in order to put down the rebellion of mankind and put away the way of Satan as he sets up his kingdom. Verse 20, or verse 19, beg your pardon. Verse 19, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword. So there's this massive army. And if it's 200 million men coming from the east, moving westward, and they're going to fight a military force that had been their plan, there's another huge military force that is part of this rebellion against Christ. And so many millions 
of soldiers, human human soldiers, are killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So too many to bury, huge carnage goes out. So there's Jesus Christ returns as the conquering ruler of the earth. Seventh trumpet sounded. Jesus Christ is returning to set up his kingdom and establish the kingdom of God and establish his law. And, of course, when that seventh trump sounded, we have a very important event that I've not overlooked, but in terms of when it happened and what happened, it'd be better to discuss this now that Christ is setting up his kingdom. But noting what happened when the seventh trump sounded was another momentous event that occurred for each of us. It was momentous. It will be momentous. That something to which you and I are looking to experience, looking to receive. And we are staking our lives on this understanding that we are denying the world. We are serving God because we are, in fact, looking for another country, another life. So let's review the things and take a few verses here to review what God has told us we will happen for all of us, recognizing that such a huge time as this is at the end of the age, something that we we pray for God's kingdom to come. We want this world to change. We want to be a part of his family. But with what we've just read, very quickly I realize a survey that in some ways hardly does it justice to understand just how much suffering is awaiting mankind. But we do know, as mentioned elsewhere that from Mr. Ames' booklet, that God is going to protect his people for three and a half years. When all of this comes to pass, those of his chosen servants that are counted worthy are going to be watched over and protected and defended so that when Jesus Christ returns, they will be able to be changed into spirit beings. And that's what we find here in several verses. And I'm going to read several of them because it is so important. In Matthew chapter 24, I made reference to that in discussing the, the seals. But in Matthew 24, Christ himself makes reference to this. That this would happen at the end of the age when he returned. Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31. says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. So all the things that we've just rehearsed, all of the events leading up to that, the wrath of Satan for two and a half years, heavenly signs, and then, of course, what happens during the, the day of the Lord, the day of his wrath, the year of his wrath, that all of these things will be signal, signals that Jesus Christ is about to return, and there will be very special events, of course, certainly when it happens. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heavens, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, they'll see him coming, but they won't, they won't be a reception committee. As we know, there's going to be one last huge military and human effort of rebellion against having the creator of the of this of this this world and mankind 
having him take charge. They're going to resist him to the end with no repentance. And when he does come, verse 31, he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet. Which trumpet? The last trumpet. That's what Paul tells us. We'll read about it again. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. All of his servants, both dead and living, are going to be gathered together. Christ will send his angels out together, his elect. Let's turn back again to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We read 50, verse 52 earlier, just to point out that this time and the fulfillment of understanding what the Feast of Trumpets is all about, it was to help us know that it was at the end of the age. But here we'll read from verses 49 through 53. Verse 49. And as if we have borne the image of the man of dust, like Adam, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man image of God and Jesus Christ. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. There are those who believe, I suppose, and teach that the kingdom of God is here now. It's in, in men. It's in his, his, what they believe is his church. But God says that can't be. He says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It cannot consist of human beings. With God's Spirit, we've been begotten. We celebrated that at Pentecost. We've been begotten as children of God, and we live this life to uh, in obedience and in service to God and doing His work. And all of that is in anticipation, anxious anticipation, to be born into that family. Knowing that we can't do that, as it says here, in the flesh. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, that's the seventh trumpet, the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. That's what you and I are living now in hopes of experiencing our way of life, of serving God and doing His work, because we want to be changed. And this corruptible, this human flesh, this very corruptible human flesh, the weaknesses, the disease, the illnesses, the accidents, and the suffering, because we experience much of what the world experiences. What we go through, Peter tells us, is what the world goes through. We have to go through that, though, with understanding, with knowing why. There is a reason behind the things we have to, the trials we have to experience, that we are going to prove to God we're willing to serve Him and obey Him regardless of the circumstances. And if we do, this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And again, this mystery that because you and I have never experienced this. We've never been changed from mortal to immortal. We don't know what it's like to be incorruptible. But not only physically, but spiritually, having the mind of God literally, and having the same character, being born of that character. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, again, one of these pieces of information that Jesus Christ revealed to Paul that we might not know otherwise, except for the record that he recorded not only in 1 Corinthians 15, but also here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Begin reading in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So when Christ comes back, he's going to be bringing his changed servants, those that have been resurrected and those that have been made spirit beings, he's going to be brought back with him. We're going to meet him in the air, it says here. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, this is by the word has been given to me. This is what Christ says, not just Paul, revealed to Paul, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So we're not going to be first. Those who have died in faith are going to be the first to experience the privilege of becoming spirit beings and part of the family of God. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So when he comes back, when he first appears, when this seventh trump sounds, we're going to be resurrected. And we, as we read earlier, going through these this, this seventh trumpet being consisting of seven plagues, these seven plagues are going to unfold or they're going to incur over the next few days. And we're that we're already going to be resurrected. We will not be part of those those plagues and uh, that suffering. The protection will have been given us, and those that are dead in Christ, we're going to be resurrected, and we will be then with Jesus Christ. And what was it like? This scripture that we know so well, First John, chapter three. Paul says he shows us a mystery. We still don't know exactly what it will feel like, but it will happen. And when it does, in First John chapter three, verses one through three, he says, "Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God." Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. So we're we're begotten. We have this opportunity to become literally part of the family of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And Paul just gives us an inkling of that. He says it's a mystery. And yes, he said, we, we have not been there yet, so we're yet to experience it. But we're going to be like Jesus Christ. We're going to be literally part of his family. And verse 3, and everyone who has this hope, the hope you and I are staking our lives and our, our very being in serving God. This is why we do the things we do. It's why we serve him, because we believe these things are, in fact, going to happen. There's no doubt God the Father, Jesus Christ, point out in his word, there is no one like God. And when he speaks, it will happen. 
He calls those things that are yet to occur as if they're history, because it, his prophecies are as good as done. He tells us these things are going to happen, and if we believe that, and we hold on to that belief, and we have that faith. The Bible tells us, even Christ began preaching, he said, to believe the gospel, that we actually believe Jesus Christ is returning. And when he does, he is going to change us into members of his family. That's the good news that is beyond all the carnage, all the suffering, all the death that is part of the, those things are part of the great tribulation and the wrath of God in the day of the Lord. Those are the things that you and I so look forward to happening. Back in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. Verse 9. It's looking forward to this time that Jesus Christ will return. And verse 9 says, And the Eternal shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. At that point, the truth of God will, over a period of time, will saturate the earth. And all will know God. God will set up, Christ will set up his kingdom. And then, as we close, let's turn back to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, and read verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. So this is just representative of all of those saints who lived in this life from Adam on down, those chosen ones that God called. And as Peter tells us, in whom he put his spirit, in the, in the uh, Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob or Israel and Moses and the prophets, he tells us that it, God's spirit, which Christ was in them. So they were part of that. They will be part of that family. And these are representative or uh, symbolic of all of those that have served God and especially the ones who have, who have died uh, being faithful to God during all this time. And it says here then, looking to all of us that are part of that resurrection, when Jesus Christ comes back in the seventh trump sounds, and we are with him from then on, and it says they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And that's part of the next story. One of the parts. Obviously, there are great and dramatic, inspiring, exciting events yet to come. This is not the end. It is simply a very sobering time. When we pray for God's kingdom, we also have to realize these things are going to come to pass. And it will be a very indescribable time for the whole world. And we are doing, should be doing all we can to, as it says in First John chapter 3, verse 3, purifying ourselves because of what we are trying to achieve. We believe the gospel. We believe in the return of Christ. 
then we are working to change and qualify so that God will count us worthy to be made part of that family. And this is obviously an exciting time in looking forward to the resurrection on our part, becoming part of the family of God. But again, the story doesn't end there. There are other dramatic events yet to unfold. And that's a story yet to be told in just beginning in just a few days and later this this month in uh, in God's Word and look forward to observing all of those things as well. But hopefully we understand what a dramatic time this will be during the Feast of Trumpets. And when these things happen, when we see these things happening, even leading up to it, for that matter, to the Great Tribulation, it tells us that we should look up. We should anticipate this. We should have a great anticipation, a yearning for it to come to pass. Because begin, these things begin to happen, to look up, because our redemption draws near. God speed the day that Christ comes back.